Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss current issues and practical strategies to improve patient care. My name is Erin Hamai-Tom, and today we will be chatting with Brian Hemstreet. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. This episode is supported by an independent medical education grant from Takeda Pharmaceuticals. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not approved for continuing education credit. Additional activities on this topic are available at www.ashpadvantage.com slash EOE. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started talking about today's topic, eosinophilic esophagitis. So first question, Brian, pharmacists often have limited exposure to and knowledge of allergy testing. The current EOE guidelines conditionally recommend an allergy testing-based elimination diet over no treatment. Can you provide us with some information on what allergy testing is, how it's done, and its limited role in EOE treatment? Great. Yes, thanks, Erin. It's great to hear you and here to be talking with you all about this topic area. You know, the role of allergy testing in EOE treatment and diagnosis is pretty interesting. So just to start off a little bit with kind of the basis for why allergy testing even appears in the guidelines. So if you recall the pathophysiology of EOE Certainly, there's triggers that cause EOE, um, some of which are dietary in nature. However, as we discussed in the webinar series, the pathogenesis of EOE is not really all that related to IgE pathogenesis from the inflammatory response that occurs. So as most food allergens are IgE-mediated, there's a little bit of a disconnect between food allergy testing and then how that translates into diagnostic testing for EOE. So just to give you some background on kind of what the studies to date have utilized to try to track down food-induced triggers for EOE in relation to using allergy testing, I think most folks that have experienced uh, allergy testing is probably in the setting of environmental allergens like grasses or, or hay fever. And what that involves is a typical couple different uh, common approaches. The most common one being kind of the skin prick testing approach where you know, there's a small lancet that injects an allergen into the skin, and then it's looked for an inflammatory response. And this is typically done in conjunction with some controls like histamine or saline, where histamine will elicit a response where saline will not. And then you can measure the response on the skin to the inflammatory response. And that often can identify particularly environmental triggers. The other common one that's utilized in allergy testing studies and in the EOE studies is the atopic patch testing, where you have patches that are placed on the patient's skin for up to 48 hours, and each patch contains an allergen that typically will elicit an IgE-mediated response. And then after the 48 hours, the testing, the patches are taken off and the tests or the patches indicate by changing color which ones have responses on the skin to IgE-mediated inflammatory response. As it turns out, when you look at the studies for both skin prick testing and allergy-based patch testing, because the nature of the inflammatory response in EOE is not entirely or hardly at all IgE-mediated, there's not a high efficacy rate in determining food-related triggers in particular using these allergy-based testing approaches. So the guidelines indicate that if you utilize an allergy-based testing approach, so for instance, 
given that food allergens are the most common to trigger EOE, utilizing those common triggers in the patch testing or the skin prick testing is only predictive in about 50% of patients at the most. And so the thought with allergy-based testing and why it's given the conditional recommendation in the guidelines is that if you test people for those allergens to try to determine which ones may be triggering EOE in less than half of patients, you know, in most instances, you're going to see that come up as a positive on either the skin prick or the atopic patch testing approach. And therefore, the guidelines give it a conditional uh, recommendation because it's not all that highly effective in identifying triggers. So when we talk about dietary interventions, when you you compare dietary versus allergy-based testing, they really favor eliminating foods from the diet as a better way to identify triggers versus preemptively testing people for food triggers using either the allergy-based patch testing or skin prick testing approach. So you mentioned the, um, you know, dietary interventions a little bit. So, you know, as pharmacists, we also have limited knowledge on the other dietary interventions like the empiric six-food elimination diet and the elemental diet. Can you describe a little bit more about what these diets are, what are the benefits to these diets, and some of the challenges that occur with these diets? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, as far as, you know, talking about allergy-based testing not being all that effective, the, the most effective approach in regards to identifying triggers is these elimination diets, as you alluded to. So, you know, the basis, again, for elimination diets is to remove potential allergens from a food perspective from the diet, and then introduce them slowly to identify which one of those allergens may actually trigger symptoms. And so there's several different approaches by which this can be taken. And these are referred to as elimination diets. So in the purest form, if you want to eliminate all potential allergens and get to kind of just the basic macronutrients, you can go with what's called an elemental diet, where you're just giving the patient you know, strictly carbohydrates, proteins, and fats in an elemental form. As you can imagine, that's very, very costly, not very palatable, and not very practical for patients to go on an elemental diet for a prolonged period of time. And when you look at the studies on interventions for uh, dietary approaches, you know, patients have to be off of food triggers for at least a couple of weeks, if not up to six to eight weeks in order for their symptoms to go away before you start reintroducing um, foods. And so it can be a few months at least that patients have to be on these diets and therefore things like elemental diets where you're you know, using for all intents and purposes, liquid formulations um, are not very palatable, not very practical, and they're quite expensive too. So the other approaches that are in the literature that we talked about last time were uh, eliminating you know, food categories, uh, starting with either um, all, you know, the main categories, the main six categories that we may um, have as triggers, which is called the six food elimination diet, versus going with four foods or two foods to start, or maybe even one food um, as well. So in, in the literature, as far as what works most effectively, as you can imagine, is you know, if you eliminate six, the, you know, utilize the six food elimination diets, that's eliminating all the major triggers that we see from a nutrient standpoint. That includes dairy, wheat, egg, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, and then shellfish and finned fish. So that's the most effective, you know, approach. Now, as you can imagine, eliminating all of those from the diet, make the diet very restrictive and, and makes the patient have to seek out other sources of, you know, protein, fats, and carbohydrates after eliminating those food groups. The way this works then is, let's say we start with a six-food elimination diet. 
you would eliminate all those from the diet. The patient would then keep a food diary as to what they are eating in the interim. And then when we start reintroducing foods, they would document which foods that they are reintroducing one group at a time. So for instance, if we started with you know, reintroducing dairy, the patient would start drinking typically cow's milk again, reintroduce that over the course of a couple of days and document whether that they have symptoms or not. And so if they don't, then the next step is then you would have to go in and do an endoscopic evaluation with a biopsy to confirm that indeed, even though the patient's asymptomatic, that the eosinophil count has not gone back up in the eosinophil um, in the tissue. So there's a confirmation that needs to also occur once the patient becomes asymptomatic to confirm that the food in, indeed is not causing a trigger for EOE. So if you remember from the symptoms basis, that clinical symptoms don't correlate well with the inflammatory response that we see in the esophagus. So therefore, you need both the symptoms, absence of symptoms, and the confirmation. So as you can imagine with six food group, six foods being eliminated over the course of several months, the patient's going to have to reintroduce foods, go back and do endoscopies to confirm. It becomes a very labor-intensive process. So that, you know, the in general, in adults in particular, you know, it's quoted that those diets are effective in up to about 72% of patients. To make it less intensive, you know, starting with a, a two-food or a four-food elimination diet um, may be a little bit more practical. So because dairy uh, products and wheat products are actually the two most common triggers that end up being there uh, at the end of the day when you go through all the testing, there are some advocates for using more of what we call a step-up diet approach, which is sometimes in the literature referred to as the, the two, four, six approach. So start with the two most common food groups, which is dairy and wheat, eliminate those first. And then if the patient becomes asymptomatic with confirmative testing after that, then you don't have to go through the remainder of the food groups from a foreign food food elimination standpoint. If the patient fails, let's say starting with two foods, dairy and wheat, then you would move to the four food group, which then would introduce things like egg and soy. And then if they become symptomatic, you know, there you can identify triggers there and then you may be able to stop. So there's a lot of advocates that say that, you know, the four food elimination diet up front in particular is almost as efficacious as the six food diet um, and a little bit less intensive. And then there's a lot of advocates for this first approach where you eliminate the most common triggers first, which would be the two food. So from a practical standpoint, what really needs to happen is the, you know, the providers caring for the patient really have to have a conversation with the patient to see how motivated they are to start with the more you know, aggressive, intensive food elimination diets like the six food diet versus maybe starting somewhere in the middle and doing four or two. And this is where having, you know, kind of a consult with um, a dietitian may be helpful as well um, to talk a little bit about what those diets actually mean, how the patient actually uh, implements those, and then kind of what the follow-up testing is going to be in relation to that. So last question, I mean, with your experience and your extensive knowledge of these dietary interventions available, what do you personally think would be the most feasible for patients to try first? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it really comes down, as we said, to several aspects. So it's going to be, you know, first and foremost, if you're dealing with to start, you know, a child um, versus an adult, it may be a little bit more easier to do the more aggressive diets um, with an adult who has better control and the ability to document their food intake um, and maybe the willingness to do the more aggressive six food elimination diets. If it's a, you know, a child where a caregiver is having to do the dietary modification and documentation, it may be a little bit better to start 
with a little bit, you know, either the two food or the four food elimination diet. So, um, you know, the guidelines recommend that if you can do it, you know, the six food elimination diet for adults in particular is the most effective, but the most intensive and maybe the less possibility of being adherent to that. So, um, so if there's a motivated patient, I would say that's the way to go. If the patient has trepidation about you know, doing that intensive of elimination diets with the follow-up testing and endoscopies, then I think it's reasonable to start with the approach that's advocated that we talked about earlier, which is the two, four, six approach. Start with the two most common triggers, which would be dairy and wheat. Start from there and then go up to maybe the four food elimination diet if that's not successful, and then ultimately end up at the six if needed. As it turns out, even with a six-food elimination diet, the literature is pretty clear that at the end of the day, patients often just end up with one or two triggers at the most. And so you're eventually going to probably find out which ones those are. So maybe starting with the more common triggers like dairy and wheat, maybe a little bit more practical, less intensive, and less expensive and time-consuming for the patient overall. Awesome. That's great. Really great information. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Dr. Brian Hemstreet again for joining us. And thanks for joining us for this ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Don't forget to check out the website, www.ashpadvantage.com EOE for our webinars, additional podcasts, and online commentaries. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to be, be, and be, sure to subscribe to ASHP podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.